0: Would you join me for prayer and ask God that He would give us both grace to understand this but also to walk in light of it? Father, thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you that you made a promise to deliver, and you kept your promise by sending Christ. That now in Him we are reconciled to you, looking to the day where we shall behold you face to face. Father, may this word today advance us so that we might be ready, we might be excited, we might grow in devotion to preparing for that day that each one of us will walk through, that it would be a good day, it would be a great day. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know everything changes in this world. I mean, communication changes, and fashion changes, and technology changes. But you know, there are some things that don't seem to change very much, and it's really... It's us. I I don't know whether it's the stubborn, sinful patterns you have, impulses, struggles that you face, just this rock-hard self-centeredness that just don't seem to change. Change seems elusive to us. I mean, we all know believers that have been in the faith a long time that just don't seem to change. I mean, they, they just seem to be the same. They go to church. They they call themselves by Christian, and they just seem to stay the same. Well, thankfully, the Scriptures do give us a bit of direction on this, not just on the need to change. There's a clear call in Scriptures to change. And, and there's a process, or at least a paradigm, that we're supposed to see change take place through. And then there's even a goal to it. And so as you look at your own life and you wonder, have I really changed? You know, every January I ask you, do you love Jesus more than you did last year? Have you changed in your love for him? And uh, many of you say, yes, you have. And we rejoice over that. Many, many say, no, I haven't. And so uh, if you would turn with me to Colossians chapter three, Paul's going to kind of give us what I think is a very clear, both call for change, but also the means through which the believer will change from glory to glory. So that as I prayed at the beginning, on that last day, it'll be a good day. That's really what we're here for. I want that to be a great day. So Colossians 3.12, Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in order deed, do, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what I'm speaking about is the Christian faith. We have a picture here of how the Christian is to change. Now I want to point out something to you that, that I didn't read. If you, if you were to look in, in um, the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is assuming we are Christian. He, he starts out saying, since you've been raised with Christ. He says that your lives are hidden with Christ in God. I mean, that's great news. He's assuming you've already been raised with Christ. He's assuming we're Christians. And yet you notice right in verse 5 of chapter 3, he goes into this laundry list of what we're supposed to put off. He he says in verse 5, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. In verse 8 he says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and do not lie to each other. He's talking to the church. I mean, isn't this amazing? On one hand, you're saying you've been raised with Christ. Your lives are seated with Christ in God. And by the way, you ought to put away sexual immorality and passions and obscene talk. Now, some people, this upsets. For me, it kind of frees me. It's a real picture of this change that's supposed to take place. Many of us, I think, come to this understanding that once I believe in Jesus, everything's going to be different. And I would say that I think it's naive to think that, you know, if you have 20 years of just patterns of self-centeredness and self-destructive behavior, sinful patterns, that you come to faith in Christ and it all changes. I don't think the scriptures support that. You say, well, I've been born again. You have been born again. You've been adopted. You've been forgiven and you've been redeemed. But even in being born again, it implies that you've got to grow up. I mean, nobody assumes once a baby is birth that, they're just ready to roll. I mean, they're just born mature. I mean, there's growth, there's teaching, there's admonition, there's correction. There's a changing of the person. I think that's what scriptures call us to. In fact, in verse 9, and then moving into 10, he speaks about this. Since you've taken off the old self with its practices, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge, into the image of the Creator. In other words, Paul's saying, he's looking at us, he's saying, you're being renewed. That's a present idea. It's a continuous thing. This is what we call sanctification. The change is coming incrementally over time. The changing from glory to glory. And so Paul is saying here, you're believers. So put off the old stuff, but put on things. Right? We don't just put off, we put on. If you look in verse 12, the passage I'm preaching on, He's saying, put on then, and then there's that comma. And what's interesting is he says, as God's chosen, holy and dearly loved. Paul again reminds us, if you ever think you're going to change, you've got to get your identity down right. Your identity is you've already been chosen by God. Before the foundations of the world, you've been chosen by him. Folks, this isn't, while it causes much confusion in our minds, It's really meant to be an encouragement that God's electing mercy is fuel for change. I can change. In fact, I can look at this text with hope because he has elected me to be holy and blameless on that day of Christ. So we're God's chosen. We're also holy that God has has seen us as holy in Christ. He's stating for us. This is your position. And he gives us that before he calls us to a pattern of behavior. He says that you're loved fiercely, invincibly, you're loved. So there's a tension here that I want you to feel in the text. That Paul says, yes, I can say you're God's chosen, holy, dearly loved, so put on. Change. Move towards change. It's a command to change. There's a need to change. It's kind of like this. Become what you are. That's what what you often hear that expression. Become what you, in fact, already are. That's what he's calling us to do. But there's a problem with that. There's a struggle And I want to just touch on a few of the reasons, I think, why we are struggling with change. Because it's clear that we're called to change, and yet many of us don't feel like we're changing. And and there's a couple of reasons. Number one would be that I think our souls are prone to wander. I think it's in the nature of man. Even man who has been regenerated, because the dominion of sin has been broken, indwelling sin still remains, and our hearts are just prone to wander. Folks, we just like the world. It's tasty. It's right in front of me. You you know, it's interesting. God offers you pleasure at his right hand. The world offers you pleasure as well. This is close. It's knowable. It's seeable. It's enjoyable. You've had a lot of practice with it. Our hearts are just prone to wander. That's why the writer of Hebrews instructs the church. He says this in chapter 3. He says, See to it, brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceptive in this way. Sin makes promises to us that offer to satisfy me if I walk them out. God, by the way, promises pleasure as well. Is pleasures and obedience, and right away we think obedience and pleasure, they don't go together. What I want is what I think of as pleasure. And so sin is seeking to deceive you that it can offer you more than God can, and we often buy into it. And the more you do it, the more hardened you are, and then the more justifiable you can make more and more justifications for why I should, do, I should pursue this route rather than the route of God. So I think our hearts are just prone to wander. But secondly, I think we're prone to individualism. You, you know, we would rather try to walk out this Christian life alone. To be in the body, to be in the church, and to be intimately acquainted with other people is demanding. You're shoulder to shoulder with a lot of people that you wouldn't normally be shoulder to shoulder with. And so you just would rather go your own way. You'd rather carve a path out of the woods on your own. So there's this prone to isolation, insulation, individualism that I think keeps us away from change. And then thirdly, I do think we're greatly affected by the culture. I mean, for those of us that don't think the culture really affects us, it does. I mean, the Internet, the television, I mean, we're just drinking in this stuff. I mean, we dress like the stars. We want to sound like the stars. We quote lines from movies. I mean, we are greatly affected. And I think it works against change. So so what Paul's saying here right in the beginning is just, folks, you need to change to put on compassion and kindness and love. I mean, I think he's calling for us to change, and there's clearly a need to change. But how? Well, this is what Paul's getting at in verses 12 to 17. He's giving us some instruction about how to change. Now, the answer may be a little startling for you. It could be frightening. But God has designed that change is to come through the community of faith. That we are going to be instruments, if you will, in each other's lives to bring about change. In fact, I I titled the sermon A Community of Counselors. I guess I could have titled it Maturity through others. I mean, you're going to grow and change only in the context of other people. That's the way God's designed it. And you can kind of hear this language in the series of commands that we have in 12 to 17. There's a string of imperatives. There's a a string of commands that we are to do. These are means of grace through which, as we practice these, we will change. The only issue is when you practice these, you will see the one another's of them. So you see in 12 to 14, this idea of adapting, adopting attitudes of, of uh, humility, kindness, and compassion, meekness, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. In verse 14, the command to put on love. In 15, there's a command there to let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. And 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And 17, to do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. So Paul's instructing us, here's how you change. Now, I just want to drill down deep a little on verse 16. There's a lot I'm going to leave out. I'm not going to touch on these other verses. I just want to look at 16 because there's enough there for us. He's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you want to change, it's going to come through you having the word of Christ dwelling in you. You notice that it doesn't say the words of Christ. It's the word. I think it's a collective expression for the gospel. In other words, let the gospel dwell in you richly. When I speak about the gospel, I'm speaking about the totality of revelation of Jesus Christ, about about every, his redemptive work, his mission, his character, his return. I, I'm talking about everything. When we talk about the gospel, I'm, I'm talking about this more than just I've been saved from sin. That's a part of it and a beautiful part of it. But it hardly comprises everything folks when you think of the gospel. I want you to think first of God God making a promise to deliver us God making a promise that he would send one a Messiah that he kept in the coming of Jesus and that when Jesus came he came to both live righteously but also to bear our sin and to bear our sin that we might, and all of creation, be reconciled back to God. It's a cosmic gospel. It's so much more than just Jesus and me. I mean, it's about a kingdom being established, a, a kingdom that God has promised to which people are drawn, getting ready to spend eternity with God, face to face, with the creator of all things. Folks, the gospel is so profound, we will never fatigue from learning about it, enjoying it, cherishing, relishing it. And he gets always driving at here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. The word dwell means to inhabit, to take up residence. That this word of Christ, the gospel, all of God's great grace in, to us in Christ, is to take up residence, to occupy us. It's not a passive dwelling. It's an active, you're thinking, you're meditating, you're considering on these things. But notice this word of Christ is to dwell in you, and that word you is plural. It's not in you, Daniel. It's in us, the church. We are collectively, together, mutually enjoying, cherishing, conversing, speaking about this gospel. That that a community that has the word of Christ dwelling in them richly, not sparingly, but abundantly. That we're growing in it. and, And that we're finding satisfaction in. We're being saturated with the greatness of Christ, all that he's done for us. So, so a church that is dwelling, that the word of Christ is dwelling in richly, I mean, we're, we are rejoicing and speaking and conversing over. We've been adopted. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We've been sealed. Uh, we've been delivered from guilt and shame of our sin. We've had the promise that the, the Christ is going to dwell among us. He's going to return. We're going to see him face to face, as we just sang. We're going to behold him face to face. I mean, this is what a church is like. See, churches, sadly, change comes very slowly to the churches that, that move Jesus to the side. You know, oftentimes, even in the life of the Christian, this obsessive preoccupation that we have with ourselves can usurp the position that is to be for Christ in the church. A lot of times I think we get caught up. E- even though we, we, may, we may believe in Jesus, we often, and I want to nuance something here, we can often see Jesus and all that he's done and rejoice over it, but look more at what he's doing for me than who he is in himself. Now, now I, I, don't want to, I, I want to rejoice in the benefits we have in Christ. You read certain books, I was given a book to just peruse, which I did, I think it was Jesus Calling, and some of these devotional books that, that are very much centered to how I respond, or, or what Jesus thinks about me, and, and how Jesus loves me, and those are all true, and I want to encourage that, but, but when you take all the words, at least of the articles I read, there was so much more of me in there than Jesus, and I just think that that can tend, it's a nuance now, so I'm not trying to be polarizing here. But all of a sudden, I can lose the centrality of Christ being everything. Because to change, is to cherish the gospel. I mean, in fact, even John Calvin, this isn't new to our day, by the way. Even John Calvin, back in the 16th century, spoke to a church, and he said this. He said that, The church is often confused as she makes more of the promises of God than the promiser. You know, it's a slight nuance. You can find yourself, I want to rejoice in the benefits of Christ. But I don't want to forget the promiser by enjoying too much the promises. So that's the first thing. A change will come to the church as we cherish the gospel. What is your practice of cherishing the gospel? I mean, do you speak about the gospel? Do you think about it? Do you cogitate on it? Do you, do, do you develop in your mind the reality? Do you ever turn to the gospels and look at the crucifixion scenes and this is what he has done to reconcile all things? Do you consider even like when we sang "Come Ye Sinners"? I love that song. I mean, that's what we are. And, and, and so, do you think about how he's delivered us and? how he's displayed kindness to us. You ever turn to Philippians chapter 2 and consider that he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming a servant. Even unto death, it says, on a cross. You ever think about those things? I mean, that's good for us to practice as a church, to think about, to dwell, mutually be satisfied in Christ. But it's not just cherishing the gospel, it's speaking to each other about the gospel. You see that in the same verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Now, the word to teach, I think, is more appealing to the intellect. It's, it's like giving information, divine truths, imparting facts about the gospel to one another. There, there is a place, not just teaching like I'm doing here or even like uh, even a formal Bible study. I think what Paul's talking about here is that we are to teach each other. In other words, our conversations are being intentional about what we share with each other about Christ. That, that I'm encouraging Daniel or, or, or Nick is encouraging me regarding the nature of what Jesus has done. There's a, there's a mutuality in teaching. But, but not just teaching, it says admonishing. And this is where I want to kind of get us to think. Because teaching is appealing to the mind. Admonishing is kind of appealing to the heart. It's appealing to the will and the disposition See, when you see the word admonishment, it has the idea of both encouragement but also rebuke and correction. In other words, admonishment is more than he's my accountability partner. Admonishment is when I am willing and you are excited about me weighing into your life, seeing some areas that are not being walked out worthy of the gospel, and I'm calling you to amend your life in accordance with the gospel. I mean, I mean, this is seriously more invasive, if you will. And, and, and what he's saying is, is that change is going to come in your life as you first cherish the gospel, but then as you speak to one another about the gospel, both with teaching and, encourage, and admonition. This admonition really is in all wisdom, Paul says. That's the, that's the qualifying phrase, in all wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom out there for us to admonish each other with. A lot of wisdom. You can go to Oprah. You can go to Dr. Phil. A lot of good, practical, utilitarian wisdom. Generally self-centered. but It sells very, very well. Paul's not speaking, of course, about those. He's speaking about the wisdom of the gospel. How does the gospel affect us? What is our knowledge of God now because we're in Christ? How does that bear on our life and decisions that we make. Paul's idea of wisdom isn't your experience. Oftentimes when we are admonishing people, we say, well, this is what I've done. Experience has a place to to speak about. But we don't want experience to usurp the place of Scripture. Scripture is the thing in which we're promised that we'll be changed through, not necessarily my experience. Maybe my experience will help explain it, but don't forego the scripture for my experience. This is what I did. Or even utilitarianism. Well, this is what worked for my friend. Gospel truth isn't always utilitarian. It's often, in fact, very impractical and sacrificial and doesn't make sense. It's foolishness to the world. So the wisdom that we may call one another to may be very hard, may be very difficult, not utilitarian at all. But that's what we need to do. So Paul is saying, hey, there's a need of change here. Yes, you're a believer, but put to death these things and put on these things. So there's the need for change I've explained. And now the context of change is both cherishing the gospel and then speaking to one another. By the way, I don't think you'll speak to one another much if you don't cherish it much. If you love it, you'll talk about it. If you don't think about it much, you probably won't speak about it a lot. But it's necessary for us to change. I think about in First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul writes these words. He says, we urge you, brothers. So he's speaking to the church now. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. So in Paul's instructions that are similar to the Colossians, uh, it's simply this, that you have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters in this church to be sensitive about where they're coming from, that we don't just bring the hammer every time. That's not what I'm speaking about with admonishment. If you sense that they're weak, they need your help. They don't need to be crushed under the guilt of what they're not doing. If they are faint-hearted, they're flagging in faith. We just don't drop the sovereignty line on them. God's sovereign. No, no, no. We want to we come along and, and, and help their flagging faith. If they're idle, they're lazy, they're walking in a manner unworthy of the gospel, then yes, admonish them. Bring about corrective words in love with humility. That's what we're called to do to each other. And if we don't want to walk in that manner, then I think we're just going to see at least a a slowness or even a stoppage of change in our lives. We practice this in the office, Daniel gave word to, that that we invite criticism and encouragement one for the other. Uh, Carol and I have practiced it for years, even when we didn't want to. Um, So let, let me give you an example of such. Uh, About three weeks ago, I asked her if I could share this. About three weeks ago, on a Sunday morning, about 7 a.m., I'd been up and I'd gone through the sermon. Carol said, um, hey, can I talk to you? Now, you've heard me preach long enough, you know what that usually is proceeding. And um, and so I said, yeah, yeah. And so she said to me, she goes, I think the Spirit's hot. And I said, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) I mean, ovens are hot, plates are hot. The spirit's hot. And what she was saying was she's being led by the spirit. I'm thinking, the spirit's hot. And, and, and she goes, uh, she, she gave me admonishment on how I treated uh, one of the kids in a conversation I had. So she, um, she drew me to the idea that I should have exercised greater gentleness in my dealing with them. And she was right. She was absolutely right. I did ask her, hey, next time could we wait until after the sermon? You know, I'll kind of take the legs out of me at about 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It's kind of tough. But, um, but it was a good word. It was a helpful word. If she didn't give me the word, that relationship with that child over that issue would have been untended. And it would, I would not have come back to display the gospel without that encouragement. We've done this to each other uh, the staff to me, myself to the staff uh, that, that have brought about greater corrective measures, even with Julie. I think about the times that that has gone back and forth. It has been immensely helpful to us to maintain a very joyous staff environment because of our ability to do it. And we have grown through it. You will not grow apart from it. Your role is to do it. Let me quote to you from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know his name. He was a Lutheran pastor in the mid-20th century. Um, German and uh, began to write some things against Hitler and, of course, um, was arrested. And uh, even before that, he started an underground commune um, where, where believers were trying to live together. He eventually was arrested and executed before the Allies liberated Germany. But here's what he wrote from this experience. He says, God has put his word into the mouth of men and women in order that it might be communicated to other men and women. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of men. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged for by himself he cannot help himself. He needs a brother, a sister, as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He asks, how shall we ever help a Christian brother and set him straight in all his difficulty and doubt, if not with God's own word? All our own words quickly fail. But he who can speak out of the abundance of God's word, the wealth of direction, admonitions, and consolation of the scriptures will be able, through God's word, to drive out demons and to help his brother. So that's simply what I'm calling you to consider. There's a need for change. You have it. You've either seen it in your life or you haven't. It's going to come, though, according to Paul, through our cherishing the gospel and our speaking to one another, both with teaching and admonition the gospel. So that's the call from Scripture. It's that simple. That's what he's calling us to do in 16. Now, I know in your mind right now, so I'm going to ask you, will you obey that? Because I know in your mind right now things come up, and you get scared. You're thinking, there's no way I'm going to do this. There's all kinds of fears that you're facing right now. I mean, one one fear may be, well, I I can't do that. I mean, I could lose, I could hurt their feelings. I could lose their friendship. You might for a time. But what is friendship? I mean, what is a biblical friendship? I mean, we we have cute little proverbs that say, you know, only a friend tells a friend when there's food on their face or when their face is dirty. In, In fact, true story, And I think the first year I was here, we had a covered dish when we still had them in the uh, youth room. And this very sweet, sophisticated, older woman was sitting across the table from me eating. And she had, uh, she did, she had food right there on her face. Now, I saw it. It was clear as the nose on her face. You could see it for 10 feet away. And I, I was neutralized. I didn't know what to do. I knew I had to say something if I really liked her. And she's talking, and we're laughing, and we're having all this conversation. She had a big piece of food on the side of her face. And, and I was doing Nothing. Nothing. And so this other sweet woman from the church came up very gently, very gracious. she says, oh, honey, you got a little food right there. And The other woman said, oh, thank you very much. Knocked it off. And they both looked at me and I'm like, I mean, if there could have been a hole right down. Where was Tom? Did she did he not even care? She, and she, the poor lady was thinking, yeah, how long would he let me talk with a piece of tomato on the side of my face? But I didn't care enough. I was too worried that I would hurt her. And yet what I was doing is leaving her in a very embarrassing situation. And this lady did it graciously and kindly. And it was all taken, and I felt like an absolute heel. So, so I mean, th- th- you may hurt feelings. Y- you may even stress a friendship for a time. But this is what John Wesley, the great um, British evangelist, wrote. He says, I know, know, and I've quoted this to you before, but I love it. It's really good. I know no other place under heaven where I can have some friends always at hand of the same judgment, engaged in the same studies, persons who are awakened into full conviction that have but one work to do on earth, who see at a distance what that one work is, even the recovery of a single eye and a clean heart, who in order to do this, so he's saying he wants friends who are living for the glory of God singularly. And he says in order to do this, they have, according to their power, absolutely devoted themselves to God and to follow after the Lord, denying themselves and taking up the cross daily. To have even a small number of such friends constantly watching over my soul and administering as need is reproof or advice with all plainness and gentleness is a blessing I know not where to find in any part of the kingdom. So he's saying that I value friends who are willing to step on my toes to speak to me about my life that I can live in a manner that I'm satisfied when I see God. So that's one fear. Number one is I'm going to hurt their feelings or uh, another objection you may have. Well, I, I, I might not do it right. I don't really know how to do it. And folks, I would just encourage you that you would walk by faith. You would walk humbly in love Trusting that God will lead you. I think about um, what verse? Oh, yeah, in Romans 15, Paul writes this. He says, Brethren, I am convinced that you yourselves, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, are able to admonish one another. You're able to do it. You are able. In fact, I would say that you're more able, oftentimes, than a trained psychiatrist. I take that from, again, David Pallison is a writer, current writer, and he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a different article, uh, but regarding pastors as counselors, and here's what he writes. He says, the most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological ability, and experience cannot grasp grasp one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it doesn't know that a man is destroyed only by a sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plumbs its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows when I come to him. Here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there were no God. The brother views me as if I'm before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Bonhoeffer's father was a psychiatrist, and so he would have known all the rhetoric of the psychiatrist. He says the Christian knows more. You know more because you know the, way, the waywardness of the soul and sin and the need for forgiveness that brings ultimate healing. And so you become the best counselor for your brother and sister. Now, some of you also may, uh, may fear because you, you think you're going to create conflict. You might. But we just spent a whole weekend, last weekend, learning on how God uses conflict in the life of the saint to bring up things that he is moving to sanctify and develop. Some of you say, well, I'm not going to really say anything that they don't already know. Well, that might be true. But that doesn't mean it's not helpful I mean, just because something, it, it, something doesn't need to be new to be helpful, it can simply be true. So Luke Aikens preached last Wednesday night with the students. Did a great job. Uh, he spoke probably 10 minutes on the transcendence of God out of Isaiah 66. And about the greatness of God in size. And as he was preaching... It wasn't revelatory to me like I hadn't heard it before, but I came under conviction of the sin of my life that I choose rather than the greatness of this awesome God. I all of a sudden felt encouraged in the God that great. I can now hope, greater hope for you and the change that God will bring in the church. Daniel and I spent a couple different days talking about how it reminded us of God's greatness. So, I mean, you administering the word to one another is of great help and encouragement, even though they may know it. And and then last, I would say the other, um, I think the other objection people have is, well, I don't want to be, I might be called judgmental. I might be called critical if I admonish another in the Lord. And I'd say, well, you might. Absolutely. All these things are partially true. But remember this. If the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, you're not going to call them to act like you. You're going to call them to act like Jesus, and that removes you from being judgmental. You're just saying, if you're a Christian, let's follow the one who died for us. And by the way, about the charge of being critical, remember, there's a difference between being critical and being corrective. To be critical means, hey, that that trait that you have really bugs me, and I wish you'd stop it. Being corrective is that trait that you have is really destructive for you. I want change for this person because it bothers me. That's criticism. I want change for their sake. That's correction. There's a big difference there. And your friends will want to walk in correction. So so Paul calls for us to change. He gives us the context. Folks, cherish the gospel and then speak to the gospel. Now, the goal of all this is their maturity. Now, you know this. The goal is that. Our brothers and sisters here in this room, as you administer this to one another, would grow in their love and their imaging of Christ. In in fact, interesting, and you can write this down and look at it later, in Colossians one twenty-eight, Paul uses almost the exact same Greek words and order as he does in 3.16. So chapter 1, Paul is saying, him, Jesus, we proclaim, teaching and uh, and admonishing one another with all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ or mature in Christ. So Paul is saying from the pulpit, this is what he's doing, and you ought to be doing it from the chairs. The same thing, to present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal. So if you would, just imagine with me, Paul is seeing the church as kind of this a rehab clinic, if you will. And, and what we are to be doing is those who are being healed by the word of God are now healing others by the word of God. I mean, just consider this. Can you imagine a church like ours having a culture where it is safe to both give and receive encouragement, admonition, coming alongside and giving strength to one another? Can you imagine the joy that it would be to be a part of this fellowship? And can you imagine the effect of the gospel on the non-Christian? I mean, it would display the glorious reality and the power of the gospel by the change that's taking place just among ourselves. you know, know, There's kind of a mistake made among many church thinkers. They think if we just can get more like the world, then the world will give us an audience to hear the gospel, and then we can preach to them and see some saved. And I would say that's wrongheaded. I would say that the world already knows what the world has. The world's tired of the world. The world wants to see something real changing people that's sustainable and, and truthful and helpful and healing. And that's where the church comes in. In fact, Leslie Newbegin was a missionary, a British missionary to India. He writes these words. He says he says Jesus never wrote a book, he never established a school. His simple legacy was a community that he left. And he says the greatest hermeneutic for the gospel, the greatest argument for the gospel is a community that lives by it. So if we simply live by it. So imagine that with me, would you? Would you consider just asking God for grace to believe this? Would you consider asking God for the strength to even invite correction into your life from those? I'm not asking you to get the guy down at Triangle Town Center. Start with your family and then the family of this church. That you would invite correction. I I would like you to weigh in with me if you have a word of admonishment. Would you consider doing that? You know, the, the struggle that you always have, at least my father told me, The struggle he had with me was, and that most parents have, is kids oftentimes in their teenage years are probably in the place of greatest need for wisdom, and yet they're also in that place of they don't see any of that need. They don't see a need for parental wisdom. But now as adults, should we continue in that track? I mean, don't you need the wisdom of others to live? So would would you believe with me by faith that we can walk this out? Creating a culture like that in this church will take some time. No question about it. I think we've already progressed, actually. But it will take time, and it will take a degree of effort. But, but let's pray for that. Here's, here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to pray for us briefly. We have the time of the service here, and I just want to reinstruct all of us. It, it, it's harder in a church this big with this many people when we have an open prayer time. But let me remind you that we're just responding to God from his word that he's given us. We've learned here about you have a need for change. The context for change is that we want to encourage one another in the gospel and speak to one another about the gospel. And then we want to look for the goal, which is maturity. So if you pray, would you pray loudly? Would you pray briefly that others may pray? And, uh, and then Nick is going to close us in uh, just a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cosmic redemption that he has accomplished in keeping your promise, bearing our sins, crushing death in his death, being raised, ascending through the prince of the powers, rule and territory, and sitting at your right hand far above rule, authority, power, and dominion. For us, the church, that we might be matured, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. And Father, may you advance that through the preaching of your word. Thank you.